Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. It's been a minute since I've asked you to turn to the book of Acts, but here we are, back indoors, back in Acts. A little different indoors, isn't it? feels almost like it's going to take a little adjustment here to get used to being back inside again. Like, I don't have to hold my pages down from blowing around in the wind anymore. I could like run around the room if I wanted to. I won't, I won't do that, but I could now. I don't have to be stuck to my Bible. Anyways, this morning we're jumping back into our study through the book of Acts. Today we're beginning a, a two-part study where we're going to be learning from Paul's journey to Jerusalem, which we're going to be covering in Acts 24, verses 1 through 14. In part one today, we're going to be taking more of just an expositional verse-by-verse look at these uh, verses before us. We're going to be focusing more on the the places and and the people as Paul journeyed toward Jerusalem this sort of final time as he's finished his third missionary journey. But then in part two next week, we're going to be revisiting a few things in these verses regarding the warnings and the concern of the believers that Paul met and, and the will of the Lord being done in Paul's life and some of the questions that might come up in our minds when we read some of this and wonder, you know, was Paul outside of the will of the Lord? Was he inside of the will of the Lord? And how maybe are we able to discern whether we're uh, walking in the will of the Lord or, or living a life that's submitted saying, Lord, your will be done in, in my life, in our lives. But for some context, because it's been a bit, Paul's been trying to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost because he and his traveling companions who were men from some of the different churches in the different areas who, who joined Paul when he left Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse one. And these men along with Paul were bringing a financial care package from the different churches in predominantly Gentile areas to bring to the church in Jerusalem to help their Jewish brethren who were in poverty. And after they left the city of Ephesus, this is uh, where we know uh, now Southwest Turkey, at the beginning of Acts chapter 20, they traveled to Southern and Northern Greece. Then they traveled to the city of Troas, which was in Northwest Turkey, then started making their way South along the Western Turkish coast along the uh, Mediterranean or the, actually I think it's the, the uh, Black Sea maybe there. But anyways, you can look on the map and find out for your seat. What is it? Aegean Sea. There you go. Thank you, Diana. But when Paul got down to the port town of Miletus, he, he called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come meet him where basically we see sort of the first pastor's conference in the New Testament, a time where Paul gathered with these Ephesian elders, spoke things concerning his life, uh, encouraged them, warned them, equipped them. And, and after praying with them and a tearful goodbye, Paul boarded a ship with his traveling companions and, and continued on towards Jerusalem. But I also want to remind us that Paul knows as he's been traveling towards Jerusalem that difficult things awaited him. Paul shared with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verses 22 and 23 that he was going bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. 
not knowing the things that would happen to him there, except he says that the Holy Spirit testified in every city, saying that chains and tribulations awaited him, yet none of those things moved him. He wasn't going to be derailed because of potential suffering. But we're also going to continue seeing in our verses this morning, as we've been seeing since Acts chapter 8, how the gospel had spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and into the rest of the world. The Holy Spirit of God had been empowering men and women to be witnesses to Jesus wherever they lived and wherever they went. These are things that were connected to the ascension of Jesus as we looked at last week. This power from on high, the power to be a witness. That, that the Holy Spirit of God had been empowering people to be witnesses. And because of that, we continue to see that there are communities of believers, churches all over the place that Paul could connect with and minister to and be ministered to in return. And all of that sort of helps provide the needed context for us, especially as it's been over a month since we've been in our normal study through the book of Acts, so that we know how to approach Acts chapter 21 as we get into this chapter this morning. So with all that in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 3 as we get into our study. Acts 21, starting in verse 1. Luke writing, he says, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a a straight course, we came to Coes, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Coes and Rhodes were little islands on the southwest coast of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and it seems that they must have been traveling in a smaller sort of boat, and so they would only sort of take a, a day's worth of travel at a time. They would travel to the next little island, stop for the night, travel to the next island, stop for the night, uh, and eventually they reached a spot on the, the coast of southern Asia Minor, or Turkey, in the region of Lycia, where they landed at a city named Patara. But then in verse 2, we find that they boarded a different boat, must have been bigger and much better suited for the 400-mile journey that they were about to make as they sailed east across the Mediterranean Sea towards Syria, north of Israel, where they landed at the city of Tyre in the region of of Phoenicia because the ship was needing to unload its cargo there. But continuing on into verses four through six, we read in Finding Disciples, verse four, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. I want to point something out here just for some needed and valuable context. That that the gospel first went out to Phoenicia, where Tyre was located, because of the persecution in Jerusalem against the church, 
that, that Paul himself played a big part in after Stephen's murder. This was while P- Paul was still known as Saul of Tarsus. This was before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and became a disciple of Jesus. Look, look at what we're told in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Paul and his companions found disciples. They found Christians in Tyre who either were those who had to flee because of Paul roughly 20 years earlier or who were now disciples because God sovereignly used the persecution of Paul all those years earlier to bring the gospel to these people and through the witness of those who had to flee persecution that the people of Tyre now getting saved. Either way, in a strange sort of way, Paul was somewhat responsible for the fact that there were disciples of Jesus in the city of Tyre and now these people let him and his crew stay with them for a whole week while their ship was being unloaded. And I just love the way the Lord is able to redeem things that only seem bad outwardly. Things that oftentimes we can't see how the Lord could use it all or bring something good out of at all. And yet he does oftentimes. Not only were these disciples not bitter or cold towards Paul, they welcomed him. They were hospitable to him. And they enjoyed close fellowship with him and his crew during that week's stay. We're going to dive deeper into them telling Paul by the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem in our study next week. But, but we see clearly the open-heartedness of these disciples in verse 5 as, as men and women and children from the community of believers there, the church entire, accompanied Paul and his companions back to the shore where they were going to board their ship and in how they knelt down and prayed together at the shore. I mean, this had only been a week. And this was the sort of response of the church entire. You know, we saw a similar sort of response at the end of Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders, but these people had known Paul for three years. You know, we see them doing a similar thing, kneeling down with Paul, except those people wept on his neck. They wept freely because they sorrowed knowing that they wouldn't see Paul's face again. And yet these people, after just a week, they're, they're traveling out with Paul and his, and his people. They're getting them back to the boat safely and, and they're kneeling down and, and praying together. Clearly, this church was a forgiving church, a, a grace-filled church, a, a hospitable, welcoming church, and they were a praying church. And these people entire are are a powerful example for us to follow after today. I mean, let's think about it for a second. If someone had, you know, come in at some point in the life of our church and they had persecuted all of us 
and they were responsible for one of our friends here in this body being murdered. And, and that person was also responsible for dragging off people from our church and then putting them in prison. How much time would need to go by for us before we would go, yeah, come stay in my house. Come back to the church. We love you. We forgive you. Because we've seen what Jesus has done in your life. I think even seeing that transformation had happened, we might be a little standoffish still. We might be a little reluctant to, to be so open-hearted and open-handed with open doors. We might go, you know what? I know it's been 20 years, but let's just give it about 20 more. I just really want to make sure that that transformation's really legit in your life before we kind of welcome you back in. But they didn't do that. We don't see any hesitancy. We don't see any reluctance. We don't see any sort of guardedness. And, and I just love this example. I think it's something that we need to learn in our own lives and how we interact with other people. Oftentimes when someone wrongs us, and it's not even anything close to a friend being murdered by someone or friends being imprisoned by someone. It's like, you said something I didn't like. You offended me. And they might not even know they offended you. They might have said it and they didn't even mean anything by it. And we'll let years go by where we're now guarded against somebody. That we can learn from these people to be grace-filled. To be forgiving. Why? Because Jesus has forgiven us. I don't need to hold unforgiveness about, against someone else. The only person that's being hurt in that scenario is me. It's you. When we're the one withholding forgiveness. When we're the one withholding grace. Now I understand that there's, some, there's a lot behind that for some people in some different relationships. And there is a protectedness at times of not allowing someone to just continue hurting you. I get that. But between you and the Lord, there needs to be a releasing of unforgiveness. There's never an acceptable time to not forgive. These people are a great example here. It's a challenge. This isn't, these aren't easy things for us. But let's look at verse seven. It says that when he had finished, or when we had finished, the Lucas speaking in, because he's there, we had finished our voyage from Tyre. We came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. So they've now left Tyre. They're sailing again. They've gone about 25 miles south. They've come to this city named Ptolemaeus where they greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. And I, I just love how Paul continually sought out other Christians to spend time with. You know, some, we might go to the grocery store and we see another believer and we're like, I just don't want to get caught in a conversation right now. I almost feel like Paul just like, if there was any possibility there was another believer, he just gravitated. He, he wanted to have fellowship. He wanted to have, he wanted to pour into them. He, he thought, okay, there, you know, the Lord might use them to pour into me. And uh, so, you know, Paul was not an avoidance type of 
uh, person. He, he welcomed that. He loved that. He sought out other Christians, no doubt looking for opportunities to be a blessing in the lives of others, but also the Lord using other believers to be a blessing in his life too. And not only do we see the same Christian hospitality happening in the city of Ptolemais as we did in Tyre, but these things continue to reinforce to us how the gospel had spread, how disciples had been made, how churches had been planted all over the place. It was like any place that Paul went, there was a community of believers there. Why? Because people took the commission seriously. They didn't think, oh, it was just, you know, that's great for the apostles. The apostles should do it. But everyone who became disciples of Jesus said, you know, that commission's for me. I'm to go. I'm I'm supposed to take the gospel with me wherever I go and make disciples. That means there needs to be intentional sort of relationships happening where you're seeking to pour into somebody else to see them growing in the Lord. And through that, churches were birthed all over the place. Places for people to be encouraged and to grow in the Lord and to worship the Lord together and to support one another. And I just love that. We are still seeing the effects of that today here, even within our church. Moving on into verses eight and nine. It says, on the next day, verse eight, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. I'm challenged by how Paul embraced the journey. Yes, he was trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. So he had sort of this time frame, this timeline of things needing to kind of happen. He wanted to be there. But he also wasn't impatient or frustrated along the journey. He, he saw opportunities from the Lord in all the stops along the way. And, and it challenges me because oftentimes I can get frustrated by interruptions. Even this morning, Coming here, I'm frustrated by red lights. Why? Why did, why? I, or, you know, like, there's little things that you, you're trying to get out of the house. And it's like, can we see that there's opportunities in the interruptions of life? That's not always so easy. Because oftentimes, I don't know about you, but for me, the interruptions are inconveniences. They're hindrances. I don't always see them up as opportunities. I see them as roadblocks that I need to maneuver around or jump over. And a lot of times those, hinge, those interruptions come in the form of people. Right? And we're like, how can I maneuver around this? This person is like, Stopping me from the more important thing that I'm trying to do. I've got places to go and other people to see. And we miss that God has put people in our path oftentimes that interrupt our schedule. 
They interrupt our plans. But they're not an inconvenience. They're not a hindrance. They're not a roadblock. Those people are a ministry opportunity. They're a divine opening oftentimes from the Lord that God gives us. And he's given specifically to you and to me that he's not giving to somebody else. And instead of becoming impatient or frustrated or trying to pivot and shift around that person or that situation, would we be able to learn to slow down and give the Lord permission to slow us, to interrupt us, and to even redirect us at times, and to be able to do so joyfully? You know, we might do it, but do we, is, is there joy there? Are we just kind of like reluctant? Are we kind of like resigned? Like, all right, Lord, fine. I'll deal with this. I'll talk to that. I'll, I'll, I'll address this situation. Instead of going, wow, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the blessing of this opportunity. Thank you for the blessing of this interruption. Thank you for the blessing of this interaction now that I'm having I didn't plan it. it. It might shift things around in my day even. It might create a burden now that, that I could have maybe avoided. But aren't we supposed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ? It's a biblical mandate. We try to avoid the burdens. I don't want I already have enough stuff on my plate. I already have enough burdens on my own. Sometimes it's hard to take others on with you. And yet that's part of ministry. That's part of us being uh, led by the spirit of God relationally. I would encourage you just as much as this is a word for me. Embrace the journey with all its interruptions. All the stops, even if they're red lights. After staying a day in Ptolemais, we find that they sailed south again, now 30 miles south, where they came to the city of Caesarea. Now, there's, there was two Caesareas in that time. There was Caesarea Philippi, it was inland, north of the Sea of Galilee, and then there was Caesarea Maritime, Caesarea on the coast, sort of in the northern area of Israel, but south of Phoenicia. And this is the Caesarea that they landed at. This is Caesarea Maritime, where we're told they entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. And we're told specifically by Luke here that Philip had four virgin or unmarried daughters who prophesied. And just like with the disciples that Paul and his companions found in the city of Tyre in Phoenicia, whose spiritual roots were connected to the scattering after Stephen's death, which resulted from the persecution that Saul of Tarsus played a big part in, I want us to remember that Philip's life was impacted by that same persecution too, was impacted as a result of Saul of Tarsus as well. But notice how Luke describes Philip in verse eight. He calls him Philip, the evangelist, one, uh, sorry, who was one of the seven. Now, 20 years 
have passed since we last saw Philip at the end of Acts chapter eight. It's hard to get the time frame here in the book of Acts at times. It's like, is this the next day? Is this two months later? It's like from Acts chapter eight till now, 20 years. 20 years since we last saw Philip at the end of chapter eight. And as we see him again all these years later, he's described to us as the evangelist, which shows us that 20 years later, Philip was still living fully for the Lord, still making his life all about Jesus and preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I have people in my life who 20 years ago were following the Lord, were were loving the Lord, but today are not anymore. And it's heartbreaking. And, And so when you see somebody who when you last saw them, they were on fire for the Lord and maybe 20 years, maybe it's not 20 years, maybe for you it's 10 or five, but you see them again and they're still pumped on Jesus. Their lives are still all about Jesus. Like that's encouraging. That's something that stirs us to keep going. Philip wasn't just kind of, and then there's Philip and he's sort of still living for Jesus. And then there's Philip the guy who hadn't totally given up on Jesus. No, yeah, Philip the evangelist, this guy's on, he's pumped on Jesus. His whole life is devoted to Jesus. He's also the only person specifically called in the New Testament an evangelist. The only person. But Luke also describes Philip as one of the seven, which I think in some ways was Luke clearing up any confusion about which Philip this is. Confusion on our part. That this isn't the Philip who was one of Jesus' original 12 apostles. This is Philip, one of the seven deacons of Acts chapter 6. See, when we first met this Philip back in Acts chapter 6, he was chosen along with six other men in the Jerusalem church as basically the first deacons. And these seven men were appointed at that time to wait tables to serve the widows in the church in Jerusalem. Then when the persecution arose in Acts chapter eight, Philip also scattered from Jerusalem and and went to Samaria and, and preached the gospel there. And God used him powerfully to bring many Samaritans to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then God used him again, called him away from that thriving ministry and called him to go to a deserted area on the road leading to Gaza, a dry place. Lord, why? Why would you call me out of something flourishing to a dry place? But he did. And God used him in the life of a prominent man from Ethiopia who had great authority under the queen of the Ethiopians. And and God used him to lead that Ethiopian eunuch to put his faith in Jesus and then baptizing him in some little pond or something that they found on the side of the road. And as they came up from the water, we're told the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. Literally, he vanished from sight. Found in another town. Philip doesn't even seem to be unfazed by that. He just keeps trekking. It says, it says he, 
And he, and he passed through. Like, hey, I don't, where, where am I? I don't know, but I'm just going to keep going. Oh, there's people here. I'm going to preach Jesus to them. And that's what he did. He passed through and preached in all these different cities until he finally came to Caesarea, where it seems he put down some roots and raised his family. But remember that Philip didn't start out as Philip the evangelist. No, he started out as just Philip, one of many disciples in the church at Jerusalem, but one who had a good reputation, we're told, was full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and that others in the church saw that about him, saw that about the other six men, brought them forward to the apostles who could help free up the apostles so they could continually give themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. But we get to see what the spirit of God did in Philip's life as he sought to be faithful to the Lord and live wholeheartedly unto the Lord. This isn't necessarily the same spiritual trend for every person's walk with Jesus. Like, you know, you you start as just, you know, you, and then one day, You're going to have a worldwide ministry. But for Philip, for Philip, Philip, he's now Philip, the evangelist, whose faith clearly had an impact on his family, leaving a godly legacy with his children, his four unmarried daughters prophesying. Understand, this is not a reference to them holding the spiritual office or role of a prophet that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, along with apostles and evangelists and the the pastor teacher. But that the Holy Spirit had given them the spiritual gift of prophecy that we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And Paul goes on to even further give clarity about in 1 Corinthians 14. These women were being used powerfully there in Caesarea. And Philip's a man who was willing to open his home to the man who played a role in his friend Stephen's murder, who wreaked havoc and imprisoned believing men and women who were part of Philip's church family back in Jerusalem about 20 years earlier. And just like we saw in how there were disciples in Tyre, And how those disciples welcomed Paul in. Here again, we see the redeeming power of God in Philip being in Caesarea and him welcoming Paul in. Redemption and reconciliation are both things that our God loves to bring about. And we see this even here in this scene between Philip and Paul. But let's continue on into our final verses, verses 10 through 14. Verse 10 goes on to say, And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we... And those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. 
Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. We don't know how many days this many days was uh, that Paul and his crew stayed with Philip and his family, but now we see a prophet from Judea who came with the message from the Holy Spirit. And we first met this prophet named Agabus at the end of chapter 11, where he came from Jerusalem to Antioch, the church in Antioch, and stood up and And we're told in that portion of scripture showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world. And because of that, in that situation, the disciples in Antioch came together according to each one's ability and sent relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And it was was Barnabas and Saul who were chosen to bring that relief gift to Jerusalem at that time. So Paul knew Agabus, Agabus knew Paul. But now Agabus is sent by the Holy Spirit from Judea to Caesarea. And understand, there's no other way he could have known Paul was there except by the Holy Spirit's leading. It's not like somebody sent a text message, you know, or a carrier pigeon. There wasn't a FaceTime going on here, right? Like Agabus is in Judea, many miles away, and knows by the Spirit of God, hey, Paul is in Caesarea and and you need to go declare this message to him. And when he had come to where they were, Agabus took Paul's belt, his girdle, if you will, it was sort of a long piece of cloth that would help uh, hold up Paul's robe in that day. You wore linen garments and at times you would hike them up if you were gonna be a little bit more active, like, they didn't have stretchy pants like back in the day. So they would just pull up the robe and cinch it, right? And then when it was colder, maybe you'd let it down. You're not in workout attire. You're more in lounge mode. It was an all-in-one sort of thing. We could probably learn something from them. I think we should return to the long linen garment. Anyways bound his own hands and feet. So this is kind of a weird dynamic. It's sort of reminiscent of what some of the Old Testament prophets would have done in in sort of demonstrating the prophecy outwardly in sort of an illustration. Bound his own hands and feet, and he gave a message that was straight from the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, thus says the Holy Spirit. That's a bold move to say something like that. That saying that in the same way, Paul would be bound in Jerusalem and handed over to the Gentiles. This message from Agabus, and understand, these people had already heard Paul talk about how he was going to be facing chains and tribulations in Jerusalem. This wasn't anything new to them. But all of a sudden, like the reality of it started to settle in as Agabus is giving this illustration, as he bound, binds his hands and feet and, and says, this is going to happen to you, Paul. It affected Paul's companions. 
So much so that they pleaded with Paul to not go to Jerusalem, wanting to prevent these things from happening to Paul. But Paul continued to share his resolve to go to Jerusalem, saying that he was not only ready to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not that Paul was unaffected by their pleading, because notice he says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? So Paul was touched by that. He's like, dude, you guys are, you're killing me here. You're killing me, Smalls, right? But he cared more about living for the name of the Lord Jesus, even if that meant him dying for the name of the Lord Jesus. And to that, seeing that Paul wouldn't be persuaded, Luke and the rest of Paul's crew stopped pleading with Paul and said, the will of the Lord be done. We're going to dive deeper into Agabus's prophetic message and, and Paul's companions responding this way, that the will of the Lord be done in our study next week as we touch on this aspect of God's will and the concern here. But as we consider some of the interactions that Paul had and things that we saw in our section of verses this morning, there's some application for us to draw out for ourselves of things that we can learn from Paul's journey to Jerusalem in our study today. The first kind of point of application I want to point out is that Paul's past sins, past failures, his past actions before Christ saved him, did not overshadow or diminish who he now was in Christ, saved by grace, a new creation in Christ Jesus, forgiven and redeemed and reconciled to the Father and justified and loved and accepted in the beloved. But what about for us? Are there things maybe for us that things from our past hold us back in some ways or, or overshadow some of the things that God's word actually says about us. Maybe for some, the things of your past have a, have a louder voice than the, than the voice of God in scripture and what he says about you. You know, oftentimes people will allow their, their present sort of life to be defined by what's happened to them or what they've been through. But what about us defining ourselves by how God defines us? You know, when the Bible says that if anyone's in Christ, they become a new creation and all the old things pass away and all things have become new. Why for some of us do we kind of act like we're kind of new creations and part of the things from the old things have passed away, but there's still some old things that have kind of stuck around. You follow me? You ever, you, you kind of, you look back at your life and you're like, yeah, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus, but it's like, but, you know, there's still these old things. No, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. Sometimes those things from the past, they, they affect how we come to God in the present. And we come with timidity. I don't know if I can really approach him because, man, I've really blown it in the past. Or maybe even in the present. God, I've blown it in the present. I don't know if I can even come to you because I'm a sinner. 
Surprise, God already knows that. He knows you're a sinner. And yet the scripture is still true. Come boldly to the throne of grace where we could find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. It doesn't diminish the truth of what God has said. And maybe for some today in, in application, there, there needs to be sort of, a, of a, a giving over of those old things that still play such a huge role in our lives in the present that hold us back in our relationship with the Lord that maybe keep us from really walking in the power of the Spirit or living fully for Jesus. Paul's a great example of this. What if Paul just said, you know what? I've done too many bad things in the past. I can't be an apostle. I can't go tell others about Jesus. I can't go minister to these people. Man, we would have almost half of the New Testament missing. The, the, the spread of the gospel and the church throughout the world, that would be greatly diminished if Paul had let the failures of his past keep him from living for Jesus in the present. The, the second point of application though, the, the church entire, as I pointed out earlier, and the individuals in that church were, were clearly a forgiving people, a grace-filled people, a hospitable and welcoming people and a praying people. And and we've got to learn from that. We've got to embrace that. I know we've come through a weird season. But these things hold true no matter what kind of things are happening in our world. As the body of Christ, as ambassadors for Jesus, if we are not these kind of people, if we are not a forgiving people, if we are not a grace-filled people, that doesn't mean that we're a, a truthless people. For whatever reason, when we say a grace-filled people, there's always going to be some in, in Christendom that go, but make sure that you're not leaving the truth. Well, of course, the truth's got to be there. But it's got to be both. We've got we to gotta have both. And be a, a grace-filled people, a hospitable and welcoming people. Again, as I've shared even more recently, that we don't just go, well, we're a people, we're a church with a welcome team and with a hospitality area at our church, but we are a hospitable people. We're a welcoming people. We're an open-hearted sort of people who reach out, all of us. Not going, well, the greeters probably got them on the way in. No, you are a greeter. You're a welcomer. You're to be that person that we would learn from that. Number three, Paul embraced the journey, as I said, embraced all the stops, embraced the interruptions. And, and maybe for some of us today, we, we, we need to learn from that and really be praying through that in our own lives. I know I do. Number five, that just like with Paul and the persecution of the past and how that affected the outcome of their being believers entire and also affected the course of Philip's life. Guys, the Lord is able to redeem things that only seem bad outwardly. And not just able to redeem, but also bring reconciliation. You know, it, it takes a real heavenly, eternal sort of perspective to be able to see beyond the things that are happening in our lives 
or the things that have happened in the past and go, Lord, I believe you can do something in that situation. I believe that you could take what the enemy would mean for evil and that you could bring about good. And to, and to be hopeful and prayerful about God working a re- redeeming sort of story in our lives, in our relationships, bringing about reconciliation. And then finally, number six, Paul's life was wrapped up in and consumed with living for Jesus, even if that meant dying for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage us today to make our lives all about Jesus too. No matter what it might cost us. To be about Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel and his commission in our homes. Paul wasn't just, I'm sorry, Philip wasn't just Philip the evangelist and his, his kids all hated Jesus. He was Philip the evangelist and his daughters were serving Jesus too. They loved the Lord. They were a blessing to the church. That we would be about Jesus in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our communities and in our workplaces and in this church. And wherever the Lord places us or sends us, Paul's companions were concerned and it was a good concern. It was, it was cool that they wanted to prevent him from having to suffer potentially and be imprisoned. But do we allow some of our circumstances at times or maybe allow our finances or allow our comfort at times to keep us from really fully living for Jesus? Maybe the things that we feel like we lost become too great of an obstacle at times. Or the things that we might lose if we choose to be about Jesus and his kingdom and gospel and commission. Jesus said, look, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and then follow after me. There's a cost there but the cost is worth it. It's worth it. Why? Because Jesus led the way. It was Jesus who went before them into Jerusalem. It was Jesus that went and actually was hung on a Roman cross for us. He didn't say, look, you guys all bear a cross, but I'm going I'm to go back to heaven and I'll watch you all just kind of, I'll just watch it all unfold. I hope it works out for you. No, he actually physically went to the cross. And for you and me, oftentimes it's not really that painful. But it is oftentimes uncomfortable. No matter what it is, it's worth it. Because living for Jesus is the only thing that truly matters in this life. I want us to prepare to take communion together. Thinking about Jesus and his sacrifice, what he instituted that night before he was betrayed. If you didn't grab your communion elements, you'll want to grab them now.
But before we do that, you know, communion is a sacrament that Jesus instituted for his disciples, for those who know and love him and have surrendered their lives to him. And look, I want you all, I want us all to be able to participate in that this morning. But if there's somebody here who's never first just surrendered their heart to Jesus, if you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus and received his forgiveness, received his free gift of salvation, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. None of us can earn it. None of us deserve it. But that's what makes it so amazing. And this morning, if that's you, before we take communion together, if there's anybody here and you need to just first place your faith in Jesus and know that you have been accepted in the eyes of God, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. I want to give that opportunity right now. If there's anybody that would stand to say, yeah, that's me. I need to make a decision for Jesus Christ today. I need my sins forgiven. I want my debt to be paid, my guilt to be cleansed. Awesome. Anybody else? Maybe for you this morning, even just considering some of these things, maybe even just thinking about living fully for Jesus and you're going, look, I haven't been. There's been things where I've been living for me and this morning, maybe you've even felt just the Lord tugging on you going, look, like there needs to be a recommitment for you today. And maybe that's someone in here that you would stand and go, look, that's me. I need to, I need to make things right between me and the Lord that's anybody yeah awesome anyone else it's a good thing these are good things to stand for we stand for all kinds of things in this life that don't matter but to stand and say Jesus I want you Jesus I want more of you anybody else this morning yeah awesome awesome Lord, I pray for these that have stood. Lord, that you would meet them where they're at. Lord, as this morning they're just going, look, Jesus, I need you. And Jesus, I want more of you in my life, that you would have more of me. Lord, that more and more of my life would be fully surrendered to you, fully submitted to you. That I would live for you, Jesus, with all of my being. Lord, would you meet them? God, would you pour out your spirit upon them? God, would even now you be restoring the joy of their salvation? That God, they would know that you're pleased with them. Lord, that they are new creations in Christ Jesus. All the old things have passed away. Lord, would they walk in that newness today? Lord, walk in what you've provided for them today. And so, Lord, would you bless them? Would you make your face to shine upon them? Be gracious to them and give them your peace. And, Lord, would you empower them to live for you? Lord, to to get out of their comfort zones, to, to get out of those places that maybe are hindering them from really living for you. And, God, would they see you working, see you moving, in their lives and in their circumstances, Lord. 
And we thank you, Father, for these that have stood this morning. We praise you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.